0: Hello, and thank you for joining our Morning Commute podcast series on multiple sclerosis. Morning Commute is developed in collaboration with At Point of Care and Projects in Knowledge and is part of a continuing medical education series. This CME-CE activity is supported by an educational grant from Biogen, Bristol-Myers Squibb, and Sanofi Genzyme. Information about the faculty and disclosures can be found at morningcommutepodcast.com forward slash ms1. You can use this link to receive your credit and evaluate this program. The URL can also be accessed in the episode notes. You can also find the complete six part series by visiting morningcommutepodcast.com forward slash ms. In our first episode, crystal gazing in MS, our faculty will discuss establishing the MS diagnosis and prognostication, namely, treatment initiation, timing, and first-line treatment selection. What forms the basis for this? How do clinicians determine an MS patient's long-term or short-term prognosis? Does it take a crystal ball? I'm your host, Candace Hoffman, Managing Editor of Morning Commute. We are joined by Dr. Fred Lublin, who is a Saunders Family Professor of Neurology and Director of the Corinne Goldsmith Dickinson Center for Multiple Sclerosis at Mount Sinai Medical Center in New York City. And by Dr. Robert Burmel, a neurologist in the Neurological Institute's Mellon Center for Multiple Sclerosis at the Cleveland Clinic in Ohio. Dr. Lublin will begin our discussion
1: welcome to Crystal Gazing and Multiple Sclerosis. I'm joined on this podcast by Dr. Rob Bermel from Cleveland Clinic. Welcome, Rob.
2: Thanks so much, Fred. It's great to talk to you today.
1: So we're going to start out with a conversation about diagnosis of MS. We, as a medical community, have been diagnosing MS since the 1860s when Charcot first put together the clinical features and correlated them with the pathology of MS. Back when neurologists not only did clinical work, but they did autopsies also. In the recent era, we have codified the diagnostic uh, guidelines for MS on what's called the McDonald criteria. And they have a longer name, but that doesn't matter, starting in 2001 and then uh, modifying them in 2005, and a big modification in 2010, and another modification in 2017. With each of these iterative modifications, we made it easier to diagnose multiple sclerosis. And so there's a a couple of principles, and I want to ask Rob to go through how we do it now. But the big point that one wants to make right away is the McDonald criteria are for diagnosing multiple sclerosis, not differentially diagnosing multiple sclerosis. The criteria we use are to confirm MS, but they don't necessarily rule out other causes for the same sort of phenomena. And this is why at the end of every diagnostic criteria, there's a caveat there that there'd be no better diagnosis. So, so Rob, why don't you take us through a bit about, about what McDonald's all about now after 2017?
2: Oh, yeah. Thank you, Fred. It's, uh, I think that establishing the diagnosis is the really most important foundation of establishing uh, a treatment relationship with a patient with MS. And so we talk about the evolution of our treatment philosophies over time and how um, we, of course, prioritize early treatment of MS. And now, um, really, the entire field is moving towards um, early, highly effective treatment of MS. Um, But it's tough to make that leap with any given patient to say, listen, I'm going to start a highly effective agent as early as possible with usually pretty significant immunomodulatory mechanism of action unless you've confidently established the diagnosis. And so you talked about how really the the sensitivity of the McDonald or the international panel criteria has um, ratcheted up over the years so that we're identifying as many cases of MS as possible in situations where MS exists. But that's always a balance between the sensitivity of the criteria and the specificity of the criteria. And as you point out, these criteria, the McDonald criteria, are built for patients who have a typical clinically isolated syndrome useful for predicting the future risk of MS. So we really can't apply them in a situation, for instance, where somebody comes to us with an abnormal brain MRI and no neurological symptoms and says, do I have MS? Um, The McDonald criteria do not apply. Uh, in that situation. In patients who have non-specific neurological symptoms uh, such as numbness and tingling, they don't apply. Uh, and so you really have to only apply them in that situation where people have a typical clinically isolated syndrome. And then um, what's useful, I think, is that the criteria actually have become a little bit easier to use over the years. And so in 2017, um, one thing, uh, one Key piece of the criteria is that you can use a single brain MRI scan to demonstrate dissemination in time. So that is a combination of enhancing and non-enhancing lesions on the same scan. Uh, And the other major criterion uh, that I think is helpful is that the return of cerebrospinal fluid. So being able to use um, evidence of oligoclonal bands in the spinal fluid as uh, to meet criteria for dissemination in time in somebody who has uh, typical clinically isolated syndrome and a brain MRI that's consistent with MS, then uh, you can make a diagnosis at that early time point. And I think the addition of CSF, you know, Fred, I'll be interested to hear your thoughts on this, but the addition of CSF simplifies things a little bit because it really, I think, went back to encouraging people to check spinal fluid for that evidence of intrathecal antibody synthesis that, that helps to support the diagnosis. And my own personal feeling is that um, we see so many different reasons for why people could have white spots on brain scans these days that the specificity of most brain MRI scans in most um, people's hands is not very high. And, and so I like the addition of spinal fluid. I'd be interested
1: to hear what you think about that. So it, it's changed our practice. We weren't doing a lot of LPs and only doing them when we really thought that we needed additional information. Uh, but since 2017, when they added on all the clonal bands, um, it's 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 a surrogate for time. It doesn't really tell you anything about dissemination in time. Uh, but instead of dissemination in time, we've been doing more spinal taps. And I think I agree with you. I think it's a good thing. I think it helps us in in codifying the diagnosis. Uh, one of the issues, well, two, I want to follow up on what you said. One was I want to highlight the importance of what you said about a typical clinically isolated syndrome first attack, meaning an optic neuritis, an inflammatory brainstem cerebellar uh, syndrome, or a partial myelitis. Those really are the ones that that the McDonald were built off of. And the other things, as you discussed, less clear-cut neurologic presentations, uh, you can't use McDonald for those. You know, you need to come up with better evidence for, for uh, diagnosing. And, and one of the things that's happened as we made it easier to diagnose MS, we've also made it easier to misdiagnose MS. And, and in 2017, we took this up in the paper in a way we hadn't done in the, in the prior revisions of the criteria. Uh, and misdiagnosis has become a, a major issue, wouldn't you agree? For
2: sure. I mean, I'm reminded uh, a lot of the work of Andy Solomon looking into this issue of misdiagnosis and MS. um, And it really is, it underlies this entire concept of if your goal is to predict the future or this idea of crystal gazing, you need to first have a solid diagnosis. And that if you're going to base your predictions on how someone's going to do and which therapy would be best to start, you need to do that on a, uh, on a, solidly established diagnosis, and that involves doing a lot of the work that's not in the diagnostic criteria, but being a neurologist, right? It's making sure that you've excluded other um, etiologies and that there are exam findings that fit and and that if there are other things that don't fit, that you've effectively tracked those down and have adequate explanations for them if, if they're atypical before assigning a diagnosis of MS.
1: And so oligoclonal bands are not unique to multiple sclerosis, but in terms of, of lessening the risk of misdiagnosis, I think they're very helpful in that regard. And it is an important issue, and it's been brought up many times now, uh, that easier diagnosis can lead to misdiagnosis. And in terms of looking at differential diagnosis, which McDonald doesn't do, uh, there's, there's a very good paper. It actually came out after McDonald 2005 when we put in, as always, the caveat that there'd be no better diagnosis. We got some pushback from the community uh, saying, well, OK, top, stop telling us about this caveat and give us some guidelines. And so there was a paper that was put out by the same group. Um, uh, the first author is David Miller. That's in a multiple sclerosis journal in 2008, on differentially diagnosing multiple sclerosis, it also discusses NMO at that time and, and ADAM. But the important point about that paper was that it has some beautiful tables of red flags, you know, red flags both clinically and on MRI that should make you think that maybe you should be diagnosing something else other than MS. And so I, I recommend that Miller paper from 2008. Uh, to our listeners, because I think it's very helpful for, in terms of differential diagnosis
2: of MS. I completely agree that I actually provide that reference to all of the residents when I give a talk about diagnosis uh, of MS, because I think those tables are so helpful to have in terms of the relative incongruence of some of those red flags with the diagnosis of MS. It's it's really helpful and puts everything in perspective.
0: Once the MS diagnosis is established, the work for clinicians really begins. Doctors Lublin and Burmel tackle the unpredictability of the disease and the challenge of predicting the future for their patients. The good news is that over the past decade, there are more therapeutics and more experience with how patients may respond. Let's rejoin our discussion. Dr. Lublin begins.
1: So let's move on and talk a little bit about um predicting. Uh, um, uh, Aaron has a good slide on this, and I forget whose quote it was, whether it was Yogi Berra or one of the physicists, where it says, predicting is difficult, especially in the future. So we're called on this every day to try and come up with prognostication for our patients. Uh, And and I think it's actually extremely difficult, but, but tell me how you approach that.
2: Well, I have to say that one of the worst parts of MS, I think, um, for patients, and it's an often uncharacterized one, but it's the unpredictability of it. Between the heterogeneity of MS, that is it affects you know, people in many different ways, um, and the unpredictability of it. you know, What's going to happen to me in the future? Those are some, uh, some of the most challenging aspects of the disease. So um, uh, as a neurologist who sees a lot of patients with MS, for me to sit in an exam room, with a patient the very first time I'm meeting them and respond to, I think, what is sort of an um, unspoken desire of the patient to uh, predict their future. What's going to happen to me? What should I do about it? That's an enormous challenge. And um, I think, actually, the evidence would state that it's, it's actually almost impossible to do that for, for the vast majority of patients the first time you're meeting them at the baseline time point. Um, It gets easier over time after the first year and certainly the first few years of um, seeing someone. But the other thing I'd like to bring up is the historical perspective here of the difference that has evolved over time between the natural history of MS, that is what would happen to a person um, if we just watch their disease and the modifiable nature of the disease in modern times with the newer highly effective therapies. So really since... The approval of the first usable, highly effective therapy, natalizumab, uh, in the mid 2000s, the ability to influence that natural history made this, in some ways, all that more, all that much more important, right? So, of course, it would be useful for patients to know what was going to happen to them. If you could sit down with a patient in 1990 and tell them that they were likely to go on to become pretty disabled within five years, maybe they would change what house they live in, single floor dwelling ramp access, things like that. Um, but now when we sit with patients, predicting the future means which therapy should you start with when um, and um, how tightly uh, should your criteria be for responding to things like any evidence or breakthrough disease activity on imaging monitoring or on clinical um, disease activity. And so this difference between, you know, patient saying what's going to happen to me is really changed with the evolution of the therapeutics for MS, because now I think we have a substantial ability to influence that natural history. And rather than placing the implication to the decision on the patient, that is, you should change your dwelling. You might need to plan for being out of work. How many kids are you going to have in the future? um, It actually places the burden on the provider a little bit more because these are decisions that the provider needs to make to influence The natural history of the disease using our therapies. So that's sort of what I feel about this issue of predicting in general. Um, But Fred, I'd be curious to to hear your thoughts on the issue also.
1: So I'm much more optimistic when I talk to a patient now about what the outcome is going to be. I mean, like much more optimistic than I was even 10 years ago, and certainly more than than 25 years ago before we had uh, any of these therapies. Um, but but I am perplexed by this issue of individual prediction where I, I think there's lots of people out there who think they can. I can't. So I can predict for a group, right? Younger does better than older and women do better than men. and you know, sensory onset does better than motor or cerebellar onset and Caucasians do better than any other race. But that's all for groups. And for individuals, not so much. And I think you 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 highlight this issue of, of how we pick our therapies, um, because we have so many. Uh, and one of them is your guess as to what their prognosis is. And I say your guess because it's hard to know. I mean, we do it off of you know how much activity we've seen, although as we get people earlier and earlier, uh, there's less activity to gauge by uh, what their MRIs look like. But, but they are approximations for any given individual. And, and of course, we will get more data on this. Um, uh, your center is meeting one study that's going to look at how we choose therapies. Uh, and I think the Hopkins folks are looking at another. And we'll come back to that uh, later in this podcast. But I think that will, will help us, uh, not so much necessarily in prognosis, but just in determining how we pick a therapy. Uh, but I think the prognostic issue is is, is really a very difficult one. And then the other thing I'm thinking about, which I guess is experiential, because you were talking about how you change, and this is an important thing, the natural history has changed. It used to be said that 50% of individuals would go on to secondary progressive MS over about 10 years. And now no one's looked at this really formally, but the number's much, much lower, just anecdotally. Uh, and, and one of the Concerns that was raised early on in the treatment era was, well, if you're stopping relapses, could the patient continue to progress beneath that just as part of progressive disease, which you may not be um, having any effect on? And I don't think that's the case. Just anecdotally, I think there are people just once they start them on therapy are really doing, you know, uh, spectacularly well for the most part.
2: I think. Yeah, definitely higher percentages of patients doing spectacularly well. I mean, I always I think there were a category of people that did very very well even on our first platform therapies on, on the interferons and glitiramer, but it was a um, relatively small percentage of people. And and now we can assure uh, really many many more of our patients I think uh, that we're going to have a treatment option for them that's going to um, adequately suppress um, disease activity. Um, you know, take away this unpredictability of You know, am I going to have a relapse in the next few months um, uh, and uh, really hopefully push off that occurrence of that highly feared occurrence of secondary progressive MS um, like you talk about.
0: Remember to claim your CME CE credits and evaluate this podcast by visiting Morning Commute Podcast forward slash MS1. Let's rejoin Drs. Loveland and Bermel now as they turn again to prognostication. As therapeutics have evolved, has predictive modeling evolved as well? Is a neurofilament light biomarker the crystal ball to see into the future of MS prognoses? Dr. Bermel addresses this question. You know, I, I
2: find myself asking whether there's anything that we should be adding to our predictive modeling. So you know, I use the same things it sounds like you do, Fred, which is demographics, um, disease activity, Maybe if I can sort of um, uh, spot with my own eye on a scan that someone has brain atrophy or brain volume loss at a young age that, that looks out of the ordinary for me, maybe I would use that as a, um, as a relatively crude measure of early negative prognosis. But um, there are not that many things, like you said, that, that can predict outcome over the long haul in any single individual I think, I guess, about this biomarker, this neurofilament light biomarker, um, as it's uh, emerging as uh, something that's being currently validated in the field of MS and wondering whether you think that is going to be useful at baseline to predict whether somebody is going to have a tougher time with MS uh, or not. But it seems to be the closest thing to a biomarker that we might have, and I'm at least intrigued by it.
1: Yeah, I share your intrigue. I, I'm I'm having some difficulties in trying to figure out what it's saying us. You know, biologically, it ought to be telling us about axonal damage, and I think that's what it does. But it looks to correlate thus far better with say acute inflammatory attacks than with progressive disease. And there's some recent data that suggests that. But I think in terms of Prognosticating at baseline, I, I don't know the answer, and I suspect that's going to depend on how recent the attack was that occurred that got them into your office when you draw the blood. Um, I, I'm most hopeful of it as a measure of response to therapy, and I think that that may be a, maybe its most useful metric in terms of um dealing with MS because, and if that holds up, that would really be very important because it would broaden your ability to look at, to choose agents. Um, and in some ways, maybe even, um, obviate this conundrum that we have of choosing between highly effective therapy versus, you know, maybe moderately effective therapies with better safety. Um, if we can get an ongoing metric that you've turned off disease activity you think it may be able to do that
2: yeah I think that you know this question of how do we monitor our patients uh, over time is uh, become a really tough one I know you and I have had conversations over the years about these criteria that have been labeled you know for instance NIDA, you know no evidence of disease activity um, and it, there are Uh, sort of critiques of those on both sides. One would be that, um, well, uh, NEED is an unachievable um, outcome measure that if you try to suppress all relapses, all uh, new MRI lesions and all disability progression, even if you select just relapsing remitting MS, um, uh, that it's uh, unachievable, basically. People saw it as unrealistic. And there was a whole category of people who said, well, our monitoring techniques are not sensitive enough. That basically, even if you do a good job controlling lesions and relapses and clinical disability progression measured by EDSS, it, crudely as that would be done in clinic, um, that y- you're still missing elements that are going to be uh, driving disease progression onto the surface. And so people felt that maybe other things should be added to the criteria, such as uh, brain atrophy measure, or a cognitive measure, or a quality of life measure, or a biomarker uh, of something like axonal degeneration, and that's where neurofilament might come in. Personally, I think that as our therapies have gotten better, our standards um, have increased, and uh, we have higher standards for control of the disease now, certainly, than we used to. I think that I remain really hopeful that we're going to get some solid validation data out of the NFL blood test, that we're going to find a place to use it. Um, And certainly, I think it has face validity, right? Like having nerve parts floating around in your blood is probably not a good thing. Uh, And so we're not dealing with an issue of face validity here. That's easy. But we are dealing with an issue of what level is normal versus abnormal. That number is likely different for people of different ages, um, because the neurofilament level goes up um, over as people age. Uh, it may be different for diff- people of different body mass as well. So um, having more blood volume to um, dilute the neurofilaments may actually mean that a lower number in larger individuals is more significant than it would be in, uh, in people of, uh, of lower body mass. So I think there's lots of complexities to be worked out here, but thankfully there's some large-scale validation studies uh, that are happening. When we talk about this idea of predicting, I sort of think of my ability to predict in terms of uh, dividing my patients into maybe three different categories. One would be the most severe disease, one would be the most mild disease, and then the other is that kind of large group in the middle. And I've always thought that I'm best at predicting, identifying people who have severe disease, um, even though none of the three categories I'll acknowledge um, do I have a, a great ability to predict? But if any, uh, it seems like the ones with more severe disease uh, are the easier to pull out. So it's the people who are hospitalized at their first attack and have a suboptimal um, recovery or subtotal recovery from their first attack or first couple of attacks. It kind of goes back to Brian Weinschenker's original papers about you know people with more frequent disease activity and the former relapses or MRI lesions or early disability. Um, those I can kind of pick out pretty easily. The ones who are going to go on to have a benign disease course at the easier end of the spectrum uh, or the milder end of the spectrum, I think those are more challenging. And for that whole group in the middle, I think it's really hard um, to predict. You know, what's interesting is even over the past 10 years, I think most MS neurologists would agree that that group that's at that far end, at the more severe end of the spectrum, we'd probably all start those people on highly effective therapies as soon as we could. But what we're talking about nowadays is the people who are in the middle, largely, and also even at the milder end, should we be starting uh, patients even with what we would ordinarily call pretty typical MS on highly effective therapies from the get-go, from the first treatment choice? And I think you alluded to the two um, randomized uh, controlled trials that are now underway, deliver MS and treat MS, that are doing just that. They're randomizing people to... uh, Treatment strategy of highly effective therapy first versus standard therapy first. And I'm curious what you think about this idea of uh, kind of the average person with MS or even milder MS going into those trials, and, and, and if you have any predictions about the outcome of those trials.
1: So, so uh, uh, again, predicting the future is difficult. Um, and so I, I'm hopeful we'll get an answer um, from those studies. I, I think they're difficult to do. Um, just because of what's involved in, in selecting a therapy, which we're going to come to in just a moment. And so I'm hopeful that they'll answer this question, both in terms of efficacy and, and safety. Um, I, I, I wanted to circle back to, to what you said about NIDA, because I think it's an aspirational goal uh, for us to think about, because the more of the disease we can turn off, the better people are going to do. And I think that that waiting for a relapse, for example, to have, you know, to change the therapy, uh, which is one of the things we might do, um, runs the risk of them having residual from the relapse, which can be 50 percent or more. Um, and so I think we need more sensitive indicators. And I think neurofilament light and there is some evidence that it does rise before an attack expresses itself. Um, would be useful. But I wonder what you think about things like OCT um, and maybe some of the other MRI metrics.
2: Yeah, so I think that um, you know OCT, optical coherence tomography, which is this uh, optical kind of office-based imaging technology used to take a cross-sectional picture of the, the retina and then using a computer algorithm to um, measure the thickness of actually the different layers of the retina, particularly the nerve fiber layer and the ganglion cell layer, um, uh, I think are um, proving to be certainly accessible. So the device is something that neurologists could actually have in their office. Um, and what's interesting is it definitely is uh, goes down over time in MS. So the retinal nerve fiber layer, the ganglion cell layer um, loss is somewhere between one and two microns per year uh, over, overall if you look at patients with MS. But in patients who have disease activity, they lose more RNFL uh, than that per year. And in, in particular, if somebody has an attack of acute optic neuritis, they might lose 10 microns or even more of their RNFL. But even if they have disease activity elsewhere in the CNS, they tend to have accelerated decline of the RNFL and of the ganglion cell layer. So that um, you know, monitoring that say on a yearly basis or, or so could potentially lend some predictive value or help to select patients who are um, experiencing more uh, nerve cell loss and should be identified potentially for more highly effective therapies if they're not on them already. I think other advanced MRI techniques um, also potentially hold promise. But it's difficult to standardize them. So I would say brain volume loss or brain atrophy is the closest one over time. And even that's a very noisy measure, meaning in a given patient, the fluctuations that you might see day-to-day, month-by-month, year-to-year might outweigh any disease-based fluctuations that we see. But there are people in our field doing some pretty cool work looking at subdivisions of brain atrophy, for instance, thalamic atrophy as an MS-specific atrophy that, that holds up pretty tightly over time. Um, So, hopeful that we could use some of those things in the future to help monitor, um, but um, perhaps not immediately ready for prime time.
1: So, are there data that show that you can alter the course of OCT loss uh, in a clinical trial?
2: So, um, I think we'll probably talk uh, about this a little bit. Most of this has been focused on progressive MS, but also the other really um, cool place that OCT has been employed is in... Optic neuritis trials. So, um, patients who uh, measuring measuring the efficacy of um, therapies for acute optic neuritis, so-called neuroprotective therapies, um, have been measured. And so, you know, OCT has been mostly utilized in clinical trials. In in this regard, we've not looked in particular at pay, like, for instance, large groups of patients monitored with OCT on highly effective therapies versus standard efficacy therapies, or patients who um, go on to accrue disability versus those who don't. For instance, in large-scale observational studies, those would be great studies to do that the field could really use.
0: A diagnosis of MS can loom large for patients. How do you choose the right therapy for the right patient? How do you manage your patient's expectations? Let's rejoin Drs. Lublin and Burmell as they bring the discussion into the clinic.
1: Okay. So let's let's talk a little bit about the the factors involved. In we talked about the factors involved in prognosis. What the 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 factors involved in choosing a therapy uh, for a patient? So, patient sits down with you. You've made a diagnosis that they need to be treated. Um, how do you how do you approach that patient? What are the things you want to talk to them about to get their feelings and let them know your feelings about choosing a therapy? Yeah,
2: the framework that I would say, you know, it's kind of labeled shared decision making, but this means that you do need to ask the patient what's important to them. And I sort of use the um, analogy that uh, the patient's the CEO of their life and I'm their chief medical advisor. Uh, And so they're the ones who have to make the decision ultimately and live with the decision. But we do get a lot of patients, the vast majority of patients at our center, as you do, I'm sure, who come to us for expert advice and guidance. Um, And so that means they want not just the facts laid out, but they would like some advice about things as well. And that means integrating the latest evidence. So personally, I try to um, elicit some thoughts from the patient about um, uh, what they've heard about MS in the past. Do they know anybody with MS or have any relatives with MS? What have they read or heard about the disease-modifying therapies? Do they have any initial thoughts on those? Some of the patients that I see have already been to one neurologist, and so they'll have had an initial conversation. If they've not already heard this talk before, we tend to follow the AAN recommendations and break the conversation of diagnosis and treatment recommendations up into two different visits. That's the other big point, is that it's a lot to digest a diagnosis and have a conversation about treatment all in one visit. The patient's typically kind of overwhelmed. So at you know, at that first visit, I'll typically outline some of my principles, um, and typically we'll introduce the idea that research exists also, if, especially if there are clinical trials the patient might fit into, and then say, hey, why don't you think about some of these principles? You know, Get used to the idea that we're going to treat your MS. It's going to try to achieve a goal of suppressing the disease activity. We're going to monitor you over time. We've got choices about which medication to start and let's meet back up in a week or two and talk about some of the specifics.
1: Yeah, we agree with that. We try to do it in two visits, and, and the only thing that dissuades that is the people coming from a, a large distance. Although now with, with telehealth, we've actually done you know like an initial in-person visit and then have the, the DMT talk um, via telehealth because you're talking, right? You're not really doing any further examination. And and so then you can go through and it gives people time to to think about what they want to do in terms of what's their risk. And you guys have studied, you know, risk tolerance uh, and individuals in the past because we have what over 20 agents now. So we have a range of possibilities to choose from. Uh, It makes for a long and and complicated discussion. And the, the skill on the on the clinician is to make it understandable. To, to look around the room that you're discussing it with and making sure that someone, it's not necessarily everyone, is getting it. You know, because sometimes someone is so overwhelmed by what's going on that, you know, that they, they really can't necessarily process the information. Um, but then you need to think about, you know, well, what what do they want to do? How how risk averse, what's their safety? And then we have the you know the screening labs that also make an effect, JC antibody status and prior hepatitis status and uh things of that sort. And another one that's a big one for us, of course, our modal patient is a young woman who's thinking about starting or continuing a family. And pregnancy planning is is complicated. So I think yes. these are all factors that lead to a very large conversation. It's incredibly complicated. Uh and uh one
2: of the reasons why yeah breaking it up into two visits I think is helpful is to at the very first time you're meeting somebody establish a diagnosis and then have very serious conversations about things like their uh, family planning ambitions and um, uh, and their priorities about safety and efficacy and things are uh, it, that's it's just a lot and it's it's overwhelming. I think actually this establishing this kind of relationship with people though, and establishing a trust with patients, whereby um, you can actually have an empathic approach to them and be able to um, uh, through questions sort out their priorities and what's most important to them, even with just asking <laughs> a very open-ended question like, what's most important to you?" Um, that they may answer any way. You know, Some people would say, well, it's most important that I'm around for my kids or, um, we, we just got married, we really want to start a family, or I really, you know, uh, it's important to me that I finish out my 30 years working for the airline that I work for. I've had all kinds of answers to this question. And it kicks off uh, a relationship that hopefully is going to be a long-term relationship between you and the patient, a therapeutic relationship where you can guide them through this uncertainty that we've been focusing on today. You know, we acknowledge that we can't predict the future with perfection but um, we can at least be a partner to the patient on that journey and hopefully help them to make um, the best choices every step of the way for each epoch of their journey with MS, um, uh, even in um, the absence of perfect information.
1: That's a great way to to sum up this this conversation on crystal gazing. And I'll just add that, that what's really exciting is that MS is at the leading edge of neurotherapeutics. We really have excellent treatments for relapsing forms of MS, uh, and we have so much more to offer our patients now than we did in the future. So, so Rob, thank you very much for this great conversation, and thank you to our listeners.
2: Oh, thank you so much, Fred.
0: And thank you for joining us today. Remember to visit MorningCommutePodcast.com forward slash MS1 to receive your credit and evaluate this program. In our next podcast in this series, Dr. Patricia Coyle from the Department of Neurology at Stony Brook University and Dr. John Rinker from the University of Alabama, Birmingham will be discussing current perspectives on treatment escalation. That podcast, Switching Tracks in MS, Timing and Direction, can be found at morningcommutepodcast.com forward slash MS2. And you can find all the podcasts in the six-part series at morningcommutepodcast.com forward slash MS.